Hey, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to this transformational talk with Lynn Fuentes, a very wise woman. And in this talk, Roger and I and Lynn explore some of the deepest questions about life, the existential questions of chronic illness, taking care of sick people, being sick people, and how that works out. And it is quite a journey. You're not going to want to miss it because we get through the dark tunnel and into the light. It's pretty amazing. Welcome to Deep Transformation. Self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our co-host is John Dupuy. And with us today is someone who's had major contributions to the Integral Movement and recently put on a conference for the Integral Movement, Lynn Fuentes. Lynn is a lawyer by training, also has a PhD in conflict management, but her life's work has focused to a large degree on not only conflict management and topics such as adult development, but in particular on the issue of chronic illness. And she has been the founder of Transformation Teaching, which offers courses on chronic illness. And most recently, she's the author of the book, The Con of Chronic Illness, which is really a wonderful, wonderful discussion of this very challenging topic. And Lynn, you came at this from a very personal life challenge yourself. Maybe you could talk a little bit bit about how this topic became so central to you. Well, yes, it came up for me in the form of my son getting sick at the age of 12. Up to that point, we'd been a really healthy family. I had never really even considered the idea of chronic illness. And uh, we went through several years of trying to get a diagnosis of uh, endless questions, issues, you know, things like, how can a child suffer? How can this be? I mean, there were deep spiritual questions as well as practical questions as to what to do and how to manage it. And so he finally got a diagnosis when he was, I think, 19. That's a long time. Of MECFS, which is myalgic encephalomyelitis, otherwise known as chronic fatigue syndrome. And that is a very debilitating illness. It, it There's a spectrum. Some people are better than others. He was on the more severe side of the spectrum. And it meant that he was unable to go to school or to work. He spent most of his, of the last 36 years, a lot of those years have been spent alone in a dark room. So it's been a very, very challenging experience to to be a parent and to be able to do nothing in those circumstances. So I think when parents are involved, it's almost the most What's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. The most engaged you can be because with other adults, if it's a spouse or somebody like that, you can rely on them in many ways to to take on the task of dealing with the illness. But with a parent, it really falls on the parent. So all of the, the issues arise. You're dealing with the person who is ill, but then you have your own inability, your own lack of capacity to make a change on top of that. Then what was the dark room about? Why is that? Well, people who have this condition are very sensitive to noise and light and also having to lie down. Most of them, many of them have to be prone because sitting up, there are, there are 
comorbid conditions like postural or orthotachycardia syndrome, which means when you when you're upright, all the blood pools in the legs and you become faint and dizzy and you have to lie down. So that's a very common comorbid condition. So he had spent a lot of time lying down, a lot of time resting. One of the hallmarks of this illness is that people rest and rest and rest, but they never feel refreshed. So it's just a very debilitating experience. So that, and then having to be out of stimulation, out of noise and sound, people are too much to take most of the time unless they're able to be quiet and able to, you know, honor the sensibilities of somebody with this condition. Yeah, I I went through a period of depression was very much like what you're describing, having to be in a silent, dark room, couldn't read, couldn't pray, couldn't listen to music, just until it lifted. Uh, Very, very hard. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to hear that. Glad it worked. And very hard, doubly hard as a parent, I would imagine. Yeah, I think so. Although I often think, you know, his life has been harder than mine, even though as a parent, you know, you you can't think of anything worse than something happening to your child. It's still, it's still, I've been able to go out. I've been able to have a life. I've been able to do things, um, whereas he has not. So I always keep that in mind. And Lynn, you you call your book, this wonderful book you've written, The Koan of Chronic Illness. Why Koan? Well, I, I got a little pushback from a couple of Buddhists in using this name. But I felt like it was appropriate because it's an enigmatic question. And it's a question that doesn't have an answer. Uh, what is chronic illness in our lives? What's the meaning of it? What is chronic illness in our society and our our overall experience. And it's one of those things that you kind of have to hold and allow it to change you rather than you somehow finding an answer. So that seemed to me to be a bit of a parallel with with a koan. And I think also because many of the questions that arise to people, including basic ones like, who am I when I get an illness, are questions that are more spiritually oriented, that are koans, you know, what's going on here? Those those sorts of questions we don't have good answers to. And the name also came, a friend of mine, Francis Bennett, who's no longer with us, was a chaplain at one time and was sitting with a very ill person who had cancer and in a very dreadful way, who was constantly asking, why me, why me, why me? And Francis said, well, that's your con to solve. At first felt like, oh, I've said the wrong thing. This may be, you know, pushing it too much. But apparently she really took it as a koan and and very much transcended the illness. And the last few weeks of her life were joyous, were open, were in a way very different than what she had been. So so the idea of koan came from Francis as well. Koan seems appropriate in many ways because, as you say is in your book, the chronic illness is really something which in many ways defies conventional understanding. It doesn't make sense. It's a why this, why, why me, why so many whys without, in many cases, the possibility of logical answers. I mean, certainly part of the response to illness, as you point out, is doing, you know, doing the best one can to get answers from science and medicine, etc. But but there are deeper questions that are unveiled, some of them very personal, very spiritual, which really aren't logical or conceptual. 
And so Cohen seems seems right somehow. Yeah, and Lynn, in your case, why my son? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Of course, you know, everybody asks that question, but when it's your own personal one, it really does change things. It, it, it becomes a very, very prominent question. How can you take an innocent child and put them in this terrible situation? How can you take somebody who has so much potential for good in the world and not allow them to express it? Those, those have been questions with me forever. You know, I don't have an answer to those questions. I've come to different ways of working with them, of living next to those questions, but I don't, I've never found an answer as such. And I'm not sure that I ever would. But you've continued your life of service in the world and being, you know, a blessing to your community. This could crush lesser people, something like that. And when people, I mean, you told me a long time ago, but I'm really just getting it now that we're talking about it. You don't seem, you know, you don't seem like somebody who's living under a cloud or really struggling. You seem engaged with life, you know, full of energy and spirit and always involved in doing good. So I, may, I don't know if that's part of the answer, but you have me looking at from my perspective, it certainly seems to be. Well, thank you. I think you do. And most people in their lives take try to take lemons they get and, and make some kind of lemonade out of them. So I think there's that drive. I think most parents react very much as I do. They they don't collapse under this. I know many, many people in this community, obviously, largely parents dealing with children's illnesses, and there's an amazing amount of strength in these people. And so I don't see myself as unusual in that regard. I think I've had to learn some lessons, which is that my my being unhappy is not serving him. My not having a life is not going to make a difference. That keeping myself as engaged as I can, as aware as I can, is is the best thing I can do probably for, for the whole family. But I have, have to say, too, that I've often wondered sometimes, is that running away? Is that throwing myself into a lot of other activities? Is it because it's too difficult? to sit with it. I've had an interesting experience the last couple of weeks since the the conference ended and I finished my book and I thought, well, I'll just stop for a while. I'm not going to do anything. Last 10 years, I've, I don't think Jose and I've had a vacation, (laughs) just sort of work all the time, which we enjoy. It's not, it's not a, a difficulty, but it's been very interesting the last two weeks to look at life from not having something I have to get up and do in the morning. And and I think it does allow things to surface that maybe haven't surfaced before. So I think there are probably a whole bunch of factors going into how I handle it, from handling my own psychology to actually wanting to, in some way, turn turn all of the situation into something beneficial for somebody. Your use of the term koan seems appropriate in another way. There's a there's a particular kind of koan that's described in Zen, a Genji koan, which is a koan that arises out of life itself. That mm. Life itself presents us with a, a koan or question to ponder, and it sounds like this has really been your Genji koan. And that's, in that sense, it really feels like the, the term koan is very appropriate. You know, I didn't know about that, so that's really interesting. I'm not a Buddhist myself, so... The analog for me... I sometimes think of cons as wisdom questions, and there's a very important distinction between knowledge questions and wisdom questions. Knowledge questions have a one-time answer. You look out the window, is it raining? End of question. But the wisdom questions have the potential for 
each time you ask them, taking you deeper into the question, deeper into yourself and deeper into life. And, and clearly chronic illness has been a, a wisdom question for you and for many people, not by choice, but by something. Well, yes, I take that back in part by choice, because, of course, how deeply one engages this question as any life question is partly our choice. And you've chosen to engage it very deeply in a way which has brought you to very deep understandings and allowed you to be a teacher, mentor, now an author for the rest of us. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And, and Lynn, as you know, I've spent a lot of years working with alcoholics and addicts, which can definitely be seen as a chronic disease that yeah. never, never goes away. I mean, some of us have, you know. We abuse alcohol that we stop and we move on with our lives or something like that. But it's chronic. So I've dealt with parents who've lost their kids to this disease. Yeah. You know, it's just like, like you were saying, this beautiful young person. Then they're just carried away. Yeah, that's definitely been one of my co-ins. It's been my family too. Mm-hmm. People that I've just loved have just, you know, there's nothing I could do. With all, all, you know, all I knew about addiction and all of being an expert and everything like that, there was nothing I could do. And I, I won some, but I lost a lot too. Anyway, it, just hearing you and feeling your energy kind of brings back to my, one of my life koans. Anyway, thank you. It's working me. Yeah, I resonate with that too. I, there's been alcoholism in my family as well. And it's been a very, very, really another koan. Yeah, another impossible issue, another another thing that is so hard to confront. And sometimes I think when you're an expert, it's even harder because you have a sense that you you have some competence, you should be able to help. And then you're you're up against the fact that you just can't. There, there are some situations you just have no capacity to do anything about. And that's really hard, hard to accept when you're in the role of the person who's there trying to help. Yeah. Yeah. Amen, sister. And have you done everything that you possibly could? And it's, you know, at some point, it's not enough. And you still ask the question: Could there have been something more? Could I have done something more? Which is a very wearing question, and and not a good one to ask, probably because all it does is take you down a negative road. But it's a hard one not to ask. Yeah, uh, so many traps with death and, and illness, and that. One of the things I took away from your, your book, that it's so easy to get into, for example, guilt or blame. And I, there, as I read your book, there were two major themes to, that stood out to me. The first was just the, the information about what an incredible challenge a severe chronic illness can be. I mean, somehow, you know, despite being a physician, et cetera, there was a way in which I got it at a deeper level, just appreciating just what it takes to, to just to manage day to day with a severe chronic illness. And the other, t- other thing I took away was, uh, you know, your very beautiful suggestions for managing to whatever extent one can chronic illness, either one's own and pointed out that most of us will have chronic illnesses at some stage of our life, but also in very, our various roles as caretakers or, or medical personnel, for example, both were very valuable. I'd, I think it would just be really valuable to have you talk a little bit about the, the sheer challenge that chronic illness takes. And I hadn't, just as one example, reading your book, I, I got this really can be a full-time job just managing the medical system, for example. 
Well, you know, I'm really glad you took that away because that's something I wanted to convey. I really wanted to get across how all-consuming and how incredibly difficult it is to get a chronic illness because I, I talk about trauma and project. Getting an illness is a trauma. It shakes up your whole life. You, you, you have to deal with this in some way. And it's a huge project because all of a sudden now you're not feeling well. You have much less energy than you might have had before, much less energy than other people. And you're handed this massive project, which is to figure out how to treat your illness. You know, at first you think, well, the doctor will do it for me, but that does not often turn out to be true. No, you're the one who makes the decisions. The doctor offers various possibilities for treatment. Some doctors offer one kind, another doctor offers another. So now you're out in this sea of information. You're on the internet. You're trying to figure out what is the best thing to do? Do I want to do conventional treatment? Do I want to do all alternative treatment? Is the doctor I have the best one? Should I be getting another one? Should I go to a specialist? So you have all that just to start with. And then if you settle into some kind of treatment program, there's a protocol that goes along with them. So maybe you have to get up and you have to take certain medications. Maybe you have to rest for certain periods of time. Maybe you have medical devices that you have to use. And now all of these things have to be organized, planned, ordered, cared for, cleaned. You know, that's another project on, on top of that. You have to keep records. So you need to keep your medical records together. That was the lesson I learned early on. I was a fairly, I don't know, in my 30s when, when all this began, I was not all that ordered and organized and I had records everywhere. And then I would try to file insurance claims. And because I didn't have all the information, they would come back to me and I would do it again. So, so you go into this world of forms and requirements and very, very particular ones. If you don't do it exactly right, you don't get it. You know, often with insurance claims, things like that, you get denied the first time you have to go back. So, so you've got that project going on. Then maybe you've got diet changes. So now you've got to figure out a new way to cook for yourself or to find somebody who can do that for you. You may be tracking down things like which foods make me feel better. That's like all of these is, is kind of like taking a college course. Okay, so I'm going to take a college course now in nutrition. I'm going to take one in records keeping. I'm going to take one in medications. And you have to become an expert in all kinds of fields that you knew nothing about. You can't even read your medical records half the time. So it seems incredible to me that we hand people this massive amount of things to do when they have really little capacity to do them, when they should actually be resting. And so then they find they have to bring in other people, caregivers of some sort, or people who can help them. And then there's the financial drain. Can you hire these people? Can you afford to? Do you have to do it yourself? Well, I could go on it, but I think you get the idea. It is just, it is just an overwhelming thing that hits uh, the person or hits the whole family. Because then, of course, the family's situation, you know, you have one child who's sick and the other child who wants to do things. You have a child, that one is probably somewhat resentful of the first one for all the attention. So now you've got all the psychological drama, the different opinions of people in the family as to what should be done. So now you're dealing with a large social psychological issue as well. And then there are the systems. You find yourself up against certainly the insurance system, the hospital system, the the pharmaceutical systems, the, you know, your work. If if you're working and you become ill, now what do you do? 
Do you say something? Do you not say something? Do you ask for some sort of change in work schedule? How is that going to play out? Are you going to be accepted for the way you are? So every every dimension of life that you walk into, now you have another whole set of problems, a whole set of things to solve, a whole set of issues to look at. So it really is overwhelming. It is just, and there you are lying in bed, not feeling like doing anything. And you've got this load on top of you. So what do you, what do you tell people who are confronted with this, either as a caregiver or a parent or the individual? What can one do? Well, I think the first thing is be kind to yourself. I mean, recognize this. Notice that, you know, this isn't something easy. Yeah, I mean, you really are taking on a major project. And then I, I in the book, I used the interval models to help people work through illness. So the four quadrant model in which you look at the interior of yourself, you know, your feelings about all this. You look at the exterior, what is, what's, what is the medication? What is the treatment? You look at the relationship interiors, what's going on in all of my relationships. And you look at the, the systems you have to deal with. And if you can use this, these four quadrants and look at the issues you're dealing with and try to place them in one of them, it's very helpful. Because if your internal system is so disrupted, it's going to spill over into all four quadrants. So, you know, maybe therapy is needed. Maybe that's one of the first things you need to start with so that you have a little more capacity to deal with the practical issues. Or maybe the practical issues are are just out of control and you need to just sit down and figure out what are they? You know, how do I solve each one of these? What, What needs to happen here? But putting them, I find that putting them in the quadrants clarifies things. And if you've got an issue that's in all four quadrants, that might be the first one to start with. So you can use the quadrants in many ways to to kind of get a handle, a picture. And instead of feeling drowned by what's going on, you can sort of sit on top of it and get some sense of how to approach it, perhaps. That's one. Yeah, same thing in recovery, uh, the book that I wrote, the, the four quadrants, just, okay, this are the issues and we can start to look at them and and then make the changes day by day, step by step. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, that sort of thing. But but just having, even when you were talking about the four quadrants, I started feeling, because you really painted a picture of just how how overwhelmingly horrible this can be in the way, you know, the way we've ordered our, our country and our medical system and stuff. And, and just to bring that as a bit of clarity and hope and okay, this, you know, it's, it's not easy, but at least we can look at what needs to be done and move on from there. Yeah. Yes. One of the things I took away from your book, Lynn, was that this is overwhelming for one person and we, we you, you need a village, but, but we don't have villages these days. We have a very fragmented society with, with at best even families in distant parts of the country. Sometimes, of course, they're, they're close by, but so often separated. And and yet it takes so much to deal with these things. And we had the privilege of interviewing a mutual friend of ours, uh, Terry Patton, who just three weeks before he died, and he got a diagnosis of a, of a carcinoma just Two six months before he died, actually, and three weeks before he died, we interviewed him, and I, I, you know, I sat in with him on medical appointments and so forth. And what what I took away was, you need a support person just to manage the medical system. 
I mean, I'm a physician and I I couldn't have kept track of all that was all that was happening by myself, let alone if I'd been sick and debilitated. Oh, that's so true. And we don't have those answers. I mean, my my feeling is the only thing we have can do is just completely revamp our our medical system, which doesn't seem to be an easy thing to do because there is no way. I had this idea of concentric circles of care, which I would love to see developed where the, the most ill people were in a situation where everybody else took care of all of these things. And then there were at the next level out, there was another level of help for people who were trying to cope and then further out and further out. Anyway, too complicated to explain now, but yes. And so many people are suffering alone. Yes. I remember even speaking to Ken, and I was so surprised. I, I got an interview with him in 2010. For, and this uh, is Ken Wilbur we're talking Ken about. Ken Wilbur, yeah. yeah. And I just assumed that he was surrounded by people who were helping him. And he wasn't. He was managing most of this on his own as well. And I thought, wow, even somebody like Ken is forced back on his own resources in a situation that, that just seems completely unreasonable. So if you don't have family support, where do you go for it? Friends can do a little bit. They can, you know, pick things up for you at the store or things like that. But they're they're not like you did, Roger, for Terry. There aren't many friends who would really step in, go to appointments, take on this, this massive project and try to help people with it. So what happens most of the time is is hit and miss. Some things get done. Some things don't get done. You know, if you're late ordering your medication, you're late ordering your medication. You don't get to take it for a few days. Or there are just so many things that fall through the cracks because there's nobody there to catch them. And the and the medical system is not that people don't care because I think most people do care. It's they have no capacity to help with those those really close to home issues, the personal issues that people have. They have their job which is to, you know, as a physician to get tests and see what's going on with the patient and make recommendations. But what happens after the patient leaves the office is up to the patient. And there are so many physicians in particular these days who are burnt out with what's sometimes called a moral fatigue that as a professor, you know, I've had so many residents, tra- trainees come and say, you know, how painful it is to realize how much an individual patient needs and how little they can actually give them in the 15 minutes or something that they're mandated or allowed by the insurance companies to spend. And it's, they suffer, they suffer from that disjunction between what's needed and what they can offer. It's very, it's pain. I've actually seen one, we had one very talented woman, MD, PhD quit. Eventually she came back into, into training, but was just too, too painful for her. It is a problem. Yeah. Our medical system is largely focusing on the right-hand quadrants, the exteriors, and people aren't trained in the interiors. I mean, you're dealing with life and death, people suffering and all this stuff. And if you don't have some, you know, you got it from your parents or got it in your church or got it walking in the woods, if you don't have that kind of strength, I don't see how you can can do it without either quitting or just becoming so dissociated that you just can't feel anymore. So... Yeah, and I think I I think there's a lot of that, and and patients complain tremendously about the way they are treated by doctors who who have been probably burned out, um, who are being forced by whatever corporate entity they're working for to cut their their time down 
just locally, we had a whole bunch of doctors leaving because the overriding organization was demanding, <laughs> somebody high up in the hierarchy said, well, it's great. We're getting the doctors down to five minutes per patient. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, it's, it's a terrible thing. And they try to fill in, you know, with a physician's assistant or a nurse or something like that. But the more people you have, the more coordination issues you have. People have a specialist in this, but, you know, so if you have a, an infectious disease, you've got an infectious disease specialist, you've got a, a primary care person, you might have a, a counselor, you might have somebody at the hospital, a hospitalist, you've got four or five or six or even 10 or 12 people supposedly helping you with your condition, but nobody to coordinate all that. And if you've got five minutes from the doctor, you can all ask all your questions there. The doctor doesn't know what questions you're asking of another person. So you end up going online, you find support groups. And I have to say that support groups are wonderful. <laughs> I have found just the most amazing help from other people going through the same thing. And I think often they're poo-pooed. These people aren't medical. They don't know what they're talking about. But I find most of the caregiver and patient support groups, nobody tries to tell others what to do, but they sure do put out possibilities, questions that you can ask the, their own experience. So I think that's that's almost a necessity these days. If you don't have at least that kind of support, it's going to be very, very difficult. I, I got diagnosed with my own condition in 2020, and I got I, I found a support group not long afterwards. And I realized that the information I was getting from that support group was actually keeping me healthy. Whereas what I heard from the doctor that I had would not have done so. So pretty, uh, pretty damning expose in a way of our healthcare system that is just not effective. It does not, for the most part, with chronic illness, there's very little help. With acute illness, fantastic. You know, you break your leg, go into the hospital, they fix it. And, you know, six months later, you're walking around. But chronic illness, well, by definition, chronic illness does not get cured. And a lot of, I think, physicians are weary of patients with chronic illness because they want to be successful. They want to do something. And the person comes back every month or two months or three months, same problems, and they're not fixed. And I've seen that patients feel guilty toward their doctors. Like, I should have gotten better. I'll go to see the doctor and I didn't get better and they'll be mad with me because I didn't get better. So there's all this going on under, uh, you know, and the doctor's thinking, oh my God, I have to see this person. I don't have anything for them. I don't know what to do. You know, I've exhausted my ideas. And and so I'll send them to a psychiatrist, which is often happens with, with chronic illnesses for what, for which there is not a very clear explanation. People get shipped off to a psychologist and that's, that's another issue, and not that counseling and therapy can't help people cope with illness, but when somebody's sent to a psychiatrist to, as the sole answer to a biological condition, a psychiatrist doesn't have anything. They can't cure the biological condition. They can only help the person in some way moderate symptoms or, or relate to it. And it's telling the patient that it's all in your head. On some aspect, yes. you know, it's like, yes. oh, great, just what I need. That is one of the things that makes me the most angry. Honestly, I have been infuriated many times in my life because of that. Because I remember when my son was 12 and a doctor said, this, this is a school phobia. Well, this was a child who had, I don't think, missed one day of school in, and he was in sixth grade. 
And he was an excellent student. And I mean, it was just insulting. It was insulting. And, and to say that to a 12-year-old makes them doubt themselves. Mm. So you're setting up a terrible situation. And there's that whole issue is one that I, I um, something has to be done about, I think, because the, many people say to me, it's not so much the illness, it's the disbelief. It's the attitude mm. that people take, take toward me that's the most crushing. And I and I think that's true. That it is. It's it's one thing if you have, if you're too sick to take a shower, and you have to, or you crawl across the room to eat. You know that's terrible. But when people say, "Oh, well, all you need to do is get a little more exercise, or get out there, or somehow resolve your anger issues, and then you'll all be better," that's just to me one of the most heartless things. It's that cruel. Can, yeah, it's, it's yeah, absolutely awful. absolutely. And you're talking now about a an even more challenging kind of chronic illness, Lynn. There's there the chronic illnesses where the disease is very apparent and it's clear this person has cancer or this person has some major dysfunction. But then there are the illnesses which are so-called hidden illnesses where it's not obvious that a person is is suffering and chronic fatigue can be one of those. person exteriorly looks fine. And for physicians more challenging, those standard labs look fine. So the patient does tend to easily get dismissed or psychologized. uh, So you're talking now about an additional kind of challenge in chronic illness. Yeah, uh, there's just too much of that. It's not that some illnesses can't be caused by upper left quadrant psychological issues or stress issues or things like that, but most of them are not. And it's a very convenient way to get get uh, somebody that you don't understand, you know, you, could, you, you don't have the, the physical evidence. Now for this illness, ME-CFS, for many, many years, there were no biological markers at all. People didn't know what test to actually do to reveal the condition. And so most of these people were sent off to psychiatrists or psychologists or somebody because it was deemed to be all in their head. There was a study done in, in England that held sway for many, many years in which the treatment for this illness was cognitive behavioral therapy and graduated exercise. Now, that study has, it ran for 15, 20 years. That was the standard recommendation. It has now turned out that over 80% of patients who do exercise, this graduated exercise, get worse. Cognitive behavioral therapy can help people cope a little bit, but it has never cured a thing. So these papers, these studies, they get into the mainstream and Doctors read them. That you know, they go looking for information, and so they these attitudes, these psychological attitudes. It's all in the person's head. They're malingering. Those are are widespread, and it's hard to combat them. Even now, even now, we see with long COVID, a lot of people with long COVID are being given this same information that is now outdated and wrong, but it still shows up all the time. And and we're going to be dealing, at least it looks like, from the epidemiological evidence we are going to be dealing with a whole new extensive wave of chronic illness as a result of COVID, because as you implied, long-haul COVID can be a very debilitating disorder, mimicking in many ways chronic fatigue syndrome. And uh, that's, I mean, we're talking about millions of people in this country alone. 
Yes, the estimates for MECFS are about 2.5 million. And I think the estimates for long haul COVID, which is like MECFS, those cases that are like, would be another 5 million on top of that. So we're talking about a large, large number of people who are going to find their lives completely disrupted. They're going to be unable to work in many cases or work in a very limited way. They're going to have this raft of of problems. They're going to go from doctor to doctor. You know, the bright side of this is that this number of people is, is forcing medical studies. It's forcing research into the conditions. And so what helps one of these inexplicable conditions will probably help others like fibromyalgia, Lyme disease. Many of these things have similar symptoms. And in many cases, it seems like they might actually come from a similar kind of cause, like a post-viral cause. And so I think there is some benefit in it. And I was just reading something this morning about a, a study that's being done on long COVID patients, and they're actually relating it to MECFS. They've discovered that in this particular study, 50% of the people who came in with long COVID met the criteria for MECFS. And we should just say that MECFS, myalgic encephalitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, yeah. Yeah, so there are a lot of similarities, and I think we will we will get some information out of all of this. So, Lynn, what, what I'm hearing, either as a parent or a person suffering from this, is what sounds like a massive, major psychological, spiritual, existential crisis, and that's putting it mildly. So, how do you find, how do you keep on living? How do you find purpose? How do you, you know, personally, I don't know if I'd stick around very long. You know, if I couldn't be of help anymore, and my, my life was nothing but chasing doctors around and trying to get meds and, and all this stuff, and the quality of my life was gone. So, but that's just me. I tend toward that, you know, and I'm not saying that's a good thing. But so how do you how do you connect? And, and I know you have a PhD in Jungian psychology. I'm a huge fan. He helped me his books when I was very young and, and needing guidance. So how do you what do you do? Well, I mean, first of all, no, I'm not an expert union. <laughs> so let me just say that right up front. What do you do? Uh, I, you know, everybody has their own answer to that question. There are a tremendous number of suicides that are coming out of these kind of conditions because people just literally cannot go on living with them. And and I'm very, very sympathetic to that. I understand it. I, I think that probably almost everybody who has it has thought about that at some time or another. So what do people do? They find some deeper meaning for themselves, in my experience. They start to hold this as a koan. They start to look for what does it mean to me? What does it say to me about life? It's really one of the most profound experiences we can have. It takes everything away that we thought was important, and it brings us back to really the essential things in life. It's Aging is another kind of chronic illness in a way, things, you keep losing things, you keep losing things. And so you come back, if you're a thoughtful, deep person, or even if you're not, you're sometimes forced to be one, you come back into these sorts of questions. And if you look at it in a spiritual sense, this is a perfect example for us of non-permanence. People look for health. They want health, but it goes, it's elusive. It leaves them. We can't hold on to it. None of us can hold on to it. I mean, obviously, we'll ultimately all die, but we'll probably ultimately all get sick before that, that happens. We don't really control this. And I think there are a tremendous number of, of efforts out there to do that, to hide 
away from illness to say it doesn't exist. Even people who have it think, well, if I just pretend it's not there and just go ahead, everything will be fine. And then they find people around them saying the same sorts of things. Well, if you just, you know, didn't pay so much attention to it or... So you, ha- you have to deal with all of this stuff. And I think Bill Epperly said something about it. He said, if you don't have a deep spiritual faith, it's too much to bear. It's, it is just too much to bear. So at the same time, it's such a tragedy. It's also a gift. Now, from my perspective, I had really not been engaged in a, what I would call a spiritual life much until my son got sick. And then I went looking for answers. And I had one of the classic book fall out of the bookstore bookshelf into my hand, and I started reading. So it's taken me into a whole new life. It's taken me into, a, you know, a, a lot of personal spiritual growth that I would never have happened. And that's, you know, that's what I try, I think, to put across in this in this book, that illness is a path for growth. It's not some sort of dead end trail. It's as important a trail as any, you know, so... Yeah, you can spend your life working up the corporate ladder and become wealthy and successful and influential and all, and then there's nothing wrong with that. But you can also get an illness and you can work your way through that. You'll put in just as much effort, if not more, and you'll come out at the end, perhaps with greater integrity, more peace, more capacity for compassion, for empathy. Aren't those better than, you know, more yachts or more admiration or something like that. Uh, I think fundamentally they are. They are um, that that an illness path has a potential to give us something more profound, more important. And if we start to see that and we start to look for that in our life, it can take us. Well, I'm thinking of Ken, what Ken said about it hurts more but bothers you less. And I think that that can apply to dealing with illness. The pain doesn't go away. The illness doesn't go away. All of the problems don't go away, but you hold it differently. It doesn't bother you so much at a fundamental level. It doesn't say something about who you are. It doesn't say what your life means. That That's up to you. It doesn't have quite the same hooks, perhaps. It might be one way of looking at it. Well, thank you for being with us on this journey thus far. And we're coming to part two and the resolution of all the work and all the the struggle we've been having with this problem. And it's a deeply spiritual problem and it's a deeply, obviously simple answer. It's pretty amazing. Stay tuned. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.